there, everyone. Thank you, as always, for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. What's something that's hard to see when you're inside can convince you day is night and to the uninformed looks like a wacky cartoon? Propaganda, that's what. Propaganda is a term that's getting thrown around a lot more lately in a matter-of-fact way. And while I think it's great that that's happening, I don't think it's quite getting the attention it deserves. So in an attempt to ensure that we're all on the same page, I'm first going to start us off with a definition of it. Here goes. Propaganda. Points of view, perspectives, and or facts that are false and misleading, which attempt to create agreement among a majority of its audience, while benefiting a small minority of it. Propaganda tends to favor the status quo. Propaganda is as old as civilization is, truly. There's examples of it going back to at least 500 BC. And I'd be hard-pressed to say that what we have is not the first use of it, but just the oldest we've yet found. Being able to craft a narrative that represents base reality to suit and aim is just flat-out useful. Hell, Nearly all of the Romans' contemporary history writings were a form of propaganda. And the most remembered Roman was also the most prolific author of propaganda, Julius Caesar, which is likely one of the many reasons we've been remembered. Which is likely one of the many reasons why we've gotten a memory of him. Caesar was able to take his genocide of an entire people numbering in at least a million the Celts, which even to his time was seen as unlawful and wrong, and turn it into a resounding political win, which he ultimately leveraged to become the figure we all remember him for, and adore his name on our salads and pizza companies. What about today, though? What does the propaganda look like today in a modern society? What does it look like when the expression of speech, art, or content in a society has to fall in line with a particular narrative? And what effect does it have? Surely some of the propaganda is incredibly obvious that it's pushing a message. Pitifully so. But even still, what effect does that message have when presented out to a world from a place of absolute authority? We will get into some of those questions. But we're going to narrow the scope a little bit just to one modern country and see what's possible when all the resources a country can have at its disposal is channeled into pushing a message. In this episode, we'll be talking about China's external propaganda, how they masterfully create a wire service to push stories out they want in the world, how the Chinese Communist Party that runs the government of China is now taking it upon itself to police narratives outside their country by weaponizing access to their market when free speech butts up against their talking points. As we've now famously seen, when the general manager of the Houston Rockets, an NBA franchise with the most fans in China, mind you, spoke out in support for protests happening in Hong Kong, or how China's view of the world is now seeping into brilliant ways for controlling thought, like the maps and globes they produce for the rest of the world, projecting their image of their territory in the South China Sea, or the independence of Taiwan, which they don't see as independent at all.
or more shockingly still, is the smart ways to reduce the conversation or shift it completely when faced with the very real and very drastic human rights crimes occurring inside of China. My guest for this interview is with Dr. Alexander Dukalski, Associate Professor at the University College Dublin and an expert in Chinese propaganda. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to Rowan Price, that friends of the show we remember from episode two, for the definition of propaganda I read off in the beginning. Hope you enjoy. Hope you all are well. Real quick before the episode begins, if you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you again. Just said that. But would you mind just introducing yourself really quick? Sure. My name is Alex Dukalski. I'm an associate professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at University College Dublin in Dublin, Ireland. Cool. Yeah. Thank you again for taking the time. I really have been excited uh, since we were corresponding like late last year uh, to talking with you. China is like a huge area that I'm interested in, especially uh, from after spending a good amount of time in Taipei. Uh, so I have a little interesting perspective there um, and something I follow a lot. So I would love to dig into, like I said, propaganda. But before I always ask first time guests a question to get to know them. Uh, and the question is, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Well, uh, you know, I guess I could give anodyne answers like spend time with family and things like that. But um, I am a baseball fan. So I enjoy watching baseball, playing fantasy baseball with friends, uh, nerding out on numbers of uh, baseball stats and that kind of thing. So I am right now a little bit depressed about the uh, labor disagreement in the league and the possibility of the season not starting on time. Uh, and I would really like the owners and the players union, if any of them are listening right now, to please come to an agreement so we can have baseball again soon. Yes, let's, uh, I'll second that. Um, I had no idea there was a labor dispute going on. That's how much I'm paying attention. Uh, <laughs> do you have a team? I'm a New York Mets fan, but uh, I have a soft spot for the Seattle Mariners as well. Oh, that's cool. You know, I, uh, I haven't been a baseball fan for a long time. I, I'm from Chicago, so, uh, and I raised, was raised a Cubs fan, so I had to, you know, go through that slog for a long time. So I got excited when they uh, won, and the year before, I got really into it from just betting on it with stats, actually. So okay. I can definitely understand having fantasy baseball being fun, because I was enjoying it from just following the numbers and not having watched a single game, but mm -hmm. it was, it's such a statistically heavy sport that it makes so much fun if you're into that. It is, it is. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, okay, so I really found the China's messaging machine really interesting. And partially that I found it so interesting um, is because I do a lot of like data studies and things like that, similar actually to what you do in the article. Obviously, I'm not, I'm more of an amateur in it. Um, but what I found interesting is I've been finding, finding following a lot of Twitter, um, state-run Twitter accounts from China. And I've noticed that there was like a large shift recently in talking about democracy and really taking it head on. 
So when I was reading yours, I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. This is part of a broader play that they have in this whole propaganda arm, if you will. So one of the things you say in there, and I kind of want to cue it off to give us a frame of reference here, is you say that China goes beyond the traditional notions of communist propaganda and how it really ramped up when Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping took over in 2012. So what is like a typical you know, uh, communist propaganda strategy? And how does China take it a step further? Yes, I mean, I think the, um, I think what we meant by that is that, you know, it's not as if China is trying to create communist regimes around the world, right? That's that's very much not what what its aim is. Um, What it does is try to, I think this gets at, you know, I'll say more about this democracy thing in a second, but, um, it tries to create a world in which um, its preferred concepts and preferred ways of thinking about things are thought of on the same level as liberal democratic uh, principles. So in December, you saw a real uptick in um, discourse, you know, as you mentioned, about, about democracy. And this basically had to do, I think, with the United States organized something called the Summit for Democracy yeah, the Democracy uh, Congress, they were really going after right. <laughs> which brought together, I don't know, close to 100 countries, um, plus Taiwan, which, of course, made China mad, but it's a separate story, um, you know, to celebrate democracy, but also to make some commitments for improving democracy. And I think they're going to meet again in a year. Um, I don't have the impression it went that well. It didn't, I don't know, it didn't make too big of a splash, but I could be wrong about that. <clears throat> but in response, um the Chinese authorities, uh, you know, release their own campaign and have a white paper on democracy, kind of Chinese-style democracy. And the basic argumentative move, I think, is to make it so that you know, the West um, doesn't have a privileged definition, uh, doesn't have a privileged place in defining what democracy is, which basically relativizes the concept, which then basically means any state can define itself as a democracy. What you saw, interestingly, three or four days ago now, um, as we're recording, um, when um, Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin met in Beijing, um, they had they released a joint statement, you know, after their summit, and they talked about democracy. And basically, they talked about how um, each country should choose its own, you know, should get to define democracy for itself. Um, which, if you think about it, doesn't really make any. I mean, it empties the concept of any sort of meaning at all, right? Um, and so kind of arguing they're arguing against, you know, kind of an objective measure of democracy, if you will, um, and, and arguing that it's sort of all, all politicized. Um, and so I think it's, 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 about, um, it's about changing the way we talk about important international norms, democracy being one, human rights is another in which it's you know, the, the um, Chinese pop- propaganda outlets talk about human rights a lot, and they always preface it with Western notions of human rights right, to imply that what you and I might think about as human rights are not actually universal. They're just sort of provincial sort of concepts. That's interesting. So they're promoting themselves, but not looking at it in a way of conquering or spreading their ideology. That's the difference between a traditional communist and a propaganda model externally, I suppose, to make that distinction, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, then. I guess we were we were probably had when we you know when we wrote that we were probably thinking about the kind of Cold War, you know, really classic sort of democracy and capitalism versus you know versus um, uh, you know communism and Marxism. Um, and um, you know, I don't I don't think that's really what's happening now. Although really recently, you are seeing China kind of tout its model, what it, you know, its, its own model more. Um, and so, you know, it, it might be heading in that direction, but I just don't see the evidence for, and I, just, I just don't think the evidence exists for China creating kind of, you know, models of its own governance system abroad. It's, it, it's just not really, um, not really their goal, I don't think. Which is kind of an interesting shift as far as like how the world order is set up, I suppose, to put it that way. Uh, where we've shifted from the Cold War regime, and now we're in this much different, more nuanced world, I suppose. Um, and I want to just ask internally really quick before we turn it externally to the way that China messages and, and propagandizes, do we have any idea how effective their propaganda machine is internally? Well, yes and no. So um, I would say... F- from kind of from a political science perspective, there are people who study it and try to do, I think one of the best ways to study it is to think about survey experiments. So basically you have um, group A, you know, read or view some content, group B reads or views the same content, but with a propaganda message in it, right? And then afterwards you ask those two groups the same set of questions and you test basically if there are any differences to see if the propaganda made any difference in the way people think about whatever concept you're interested in, in testing and learning about. Um, and so some people have done that and uh, tried to figure out if it has any effect. Um, one finding that's interesting uh, by a scholar called Haifeng Huang um, is basically that, you know, the, the, the propaganda doesn't so much persuade people but it deters them from collective challenges, from making collective challenges, I should say. So, you know, people might be skeptical of any given message, but that they know that the, the repeated kind of iterations of propaganda means that kind of signals that people have, that the government has overwhelming power vis-a-vis the people so challenging and is kind of always bound to be fruitless. Um, and there's, a, there's kind of a longer... Um, stream of scholarship that makes that argument that um, I think is, is pretty convincing. Um, but I think one way to think about effectiveness is it's notoriously hard in a place like China or, you know, that has kind of authoritarian constraints on information gathering. So there's a big debate about, you know, how reliable public opinion evidence is and things like that. Um, but one thing that we can kind of think about is the, the rising nationalism in, in China. Um, in the last few decades, particularly as it pertains to foreign policy and China kind of standing up and, you know, taking a more more robust role in the world stage. I mean, this doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a combination of China's growing material power, of course, but also um, changes in the school curriculum um, a few decades ago after Tiananmen Square um, that emphasized more patriotism and more nationalism. And this was called the Patriotic Education Campaign. Um, and it was basically to, again, not so much kind of your 
orthodox Marxism, Leninism, class struggle stuff, but your, you know, the more classic kind of nationalist sort of messages about um, how China should be powerful, of course, led by the party, right? But um, you should be patriotic and patriotism is really good. Um, and so from that sense, you know, that kind of propaganda campaign, I mean, I would argue you're kind of in a macro sense, it's hard to test, right? But in a macro sense, you've kind of seen the results of that with a much more nationalistic public. So yeah, I mean, I think it works quite a lot. The other thing to note, I think, is that um, China is, I mean, very well known, has a um, really intricate and sophisticated censorship system. So that means propaganda messages, it's not just that propaganda messages are disseminated, it's that propaganda messages are disseminated and have less to compete against, right? Um, and so, I think that's why sometimes China's propaganda externally sometimes looks kind of clumsy um, because it's, it's just, it's not sharpened by competition over a long period of time. And when it's put out into the public sphere in a liberal democratic society where people are um, you know, exposed to lots of different ideas and um, have access to basically any information they want, uh, sometimes it kind of looks a little amateurish, you know? Wow. Well, okay. Wow. That was very fascinating across a lot of ways. Um, so that's interesting. What I found interesting in the beginning there is essentially we've had 30 years on this shift since Tiananmen Square to promoting more nationalism, having that education. So the fruits of that is starting to come out with, you know, getting the kinks out and getting it going. You have about a generation and a half of people working through that that are now becoming adults or older or coming from it. <laughs> and also that propaganda tends to dissuade collective action as opposed to um, changing someone's mind. So you have that going on in the older generation that remembers Tiananmen Square while also it's, it's starting to shift to becoming more of a natural nat nationalistic um, and taking a step in the world stage in an economy of both information and commerce that they completely control. That's pretty completely controlled by the party, right? The Chinese Communist Party, um, which in some ways I find that so fascinating because it's almost more like there's a, a mob order within the government that's actually in control of, of the strings with the party at the helm of literally everything. Um, so taking that, oh, go ahead. If you want to comment on that. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, this, I mean, this control, you know, over the main um, media outlets in China has been, obviously it's been the case since 49. I mean, the since the people's Republic has come into existence, but in the um, 90s and in the early 2000s, it was a bit more loosening. I mean, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people comment on how there was kind of, there was a more liberal public sphere under particularly the Hu Jintao administration. Um, and um, there was kind of more commercialization and more, the boundaries are a little bit more expansive. Um, in February, 2016, I think it was Xi Jinping visited the headquarters of CCTV, the People's Daily, and and Xinhua, I think three main news outlets, and um, you know, basically gave, gave them the message that the the media needs to um, needs to sing from the party's hymn sheet, if you will, you know. Um, and so you can interpret that. I mean, I think the effect has been pretty clear that it's you know you have seen a reass you know a reassertion of uh, party control, but you could interpret that as maybe before that time, the party felt like they didn't have as much control as they wanted over, over those media outlets. So there has, I think, been a reassertion um, 
on those outlets. Yeah. And honestly, that is like such a great analogy for so many other things since Xi Jinping of him walking into the room and subtly, not so subtly saying fall in line. Uh, yeah. That's very much in line with him and the way he seems to operate. Um, I think tech uh, and some of the, the way he's been cracking down on that most recently is another great example of that where uh, almost, I mean, not to the same degree or the exact same story, but very liberal open policies around it let the industry crop up and then all of a sudden coming in and saying like nope this is just want to make make sure you know what you know who's really in charge here mm -hmm. we're going to change things to make sure it's it's in our image if you will um which i think xinjiang like uh xinjiang the province in which there's the uyghur re-education camps uh you also bring up as a another class and then they use classic you say classic distraction strategies of just shifting from allowing things to be talked about uh, what's going on there to wanting it to be more about how awesome of a place it is and things like that. Um, is that something that they were also doing within internally, like inside of China was, you know, cause there was at some point in time, like knife attacks and things like that in mm -hmm. um, railway stations. Um, so how much was that kind of controlled in a similar manner of, of this propaganda? Yeah, in 2014 in particular, there were a couple of violent attacks, um, you know, one in Kunming um, and uh, one in Urubji, and I think another one in Beijing as well. Um, so yeah, there, there definitely were. Um, you know, I think the, the issue is the response by the government has been so disproportionate to the threat that actually was there from, from um, those, those uh, you know, those acts of violence that it's just been kind of over, overwhelmed, you know, um, the population. Um, you know, I haven't looked systematically at internal propaganda uh, about Xinjiang. Um, for my recent book, I did look at external propaganda. I analyzed um, videos by CGTN, China Global Television, which is, uh, yeah, ultimately, I mean, controlled by the party. Um, so it's kind of their narrative. And what I did was compared so I tracked on a timeline the salience of Xinjiang in the international media, like the non-Chinese media. Um, and what you see is before 2018, uh, pretty low, like not that many people are talking about it. Um, and then in fall of, I think August, 2018, the UN um, um, Commission on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination uh, receives a report about Xinjiang that's sort of pretty alarming and that makes some news. And then you see the U.S. House of Representatives start making some noise about it. And then in fall of 2019, uh, I think November 2019 specifically, you see major leaks of internal documents to the New York Times on one hand, and then another one, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which is the group that broke the Panama Papers story they work across newsrooms together. Um, and so you saw really increased salience about Xinjiang internationally. What was curious, if you look at CGTN coverage, uh, or content, I should say, is when it was low salience internationally, they pretty much preferred to just ignore it. And, you know, sometimes running videos about, um, you know, cultural development or economic development that the party's bringing, you know, sometimes stories about terrorism, but not much, right? When it starts to become more, so I think the preference is to, like for the external propaganda to ignore repression, 
basically to ignore Chinese repression, to not have to say anything about it. But then it becomes a point where it's so salient internationally that they feel like they have to respond and say something. Uh, and so then you saw videos about how the, these re-education camps were not really camps, they were boarding schools, were so great. And, you know, you would have some people, you know, some, I mean, I don't know what else to call them, but like forced kind of testimonies or look like forced testimonies um, about how great the camps were and they changed their thinking and so on. And then you saw 2019, late 2019 and continuing, basically kind of an accuse the accuser distraction sort of um, tactic of, you know, how dare you West criticize us? You guys did have, do terrible things, the Holocaust and, uh, you know, repressing indigenous people and racism in the United States and all those sorts of things. What doesn't make any sense to me, I mean, it works as a distraction tactic, right? Because then you start talking about those things and it does kind of lower your, um, it, it does kind of confuse and muddy the waters. Um, but what, what I've never found convincing about that tactic, I guess, or it's not meant to be convincing, is that it's clearly identifying those problems in the West as bad things, which we can agree, we can all agree are bad things. So it's saying, it's basically saying you do bad things, which then implies the thing that I am doing is also bad, right? Um, and so if you, it's the kind of tactic that works, but if you think about it for two seconds, doesn't, it doesn't make sense, right? But, but you see it all the time because it works, basically. Distracts the conversation. Yeah, it distracts and almost casts a spell in a way where you get so wrapped up in what you're talking about, the words that are going back and forth and the actions, and you probably know more, a lot more. I think the other thing about China is pulling that is that we know so much more typically, you know, on at least especially from the American perspective sure. of, you know, the Holocaust or things that we've done or like drone strikes or things like that, which, you know, you see get brought up. Um and those are like, they're poking at areas, especially with the drone strikes where like, we don't even like that we're doing that. Right. So like it, it starts poking at the, the tense areas. So then it's a huge distraction. Um, then really understanding what's going on there. You know what I mean? And, and how much of our things that we purchase come from China. And I mean, the smartphone gets brought up a lot, but like how much, you know, death and destruction and suffering goes into make one of those, you know what I mean? Uh, let alone a lot of cheap clothing as well fast fashion is is even wrapped up in these camps and forced labor you know yeah. situations like the cotton that was a, a big deal not that long ago um i wonder if we could bracket for one second before i want to ask a bunch about external and if you could just help us understand to kind of even play upon what i just said what is the party within their news agencies maybe we can focus on like how does the party are they do they have members there you, you can help us understand that how that differs from like a typical western arrangement because you know like the government can have control over media you know with access and influence and definitely corporations you know and just like who shareholders and all that kind of stuff uh definitely take a play in there but i feel like the concept of how china structures it and influences their co companies especially maybe we can just focus on media or expand it out as much as the analogy holds uh to give us a, a glass to, to fill and understand yes yeah, so you have different um you know, different entities. So there are some that are just directly party owned. Like the People's Daily newspaper is literally the party's newspaper. 
like it's not hidden or anything like that, right? It's, it is the, the official party newspaper. Um, and then provincial level parties, you know, the party at provincial levels have, has newspapers as well. Um, so, you know, that kind of, um, those part, like specifically party owned outlets, it's pretty clear, party owns then appoint the editors, so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> Xinhua is a state run news agency. So it's styled as kind of China's official news agency, right? which it is. Uh, but people who don't know much about Chinese politics might think that that means the party is not involved. But in China, the party controls the state at every single level. So and in fact, the party is more important than the state, the state being the bureaucracy and the, you know, all the things, you know, the ministries and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the party, it's a state-run news agency, but the state is overseen by the party. So the Xinhua, Xinhua ultimately um, comes, ultimately is reporting to the, the central propaganda department, right? Um, and so it's a dis, kind of a distinction without a difference in a way. Um, CCTV is the same way. It's not the surveillance cameras. CCTV is China's central television. Um, it's it's party state-owned, right? So that is very clear. In terms of kind of private um, media enterprises, the control is less direct. Um, so what you see, uh, there was a, a project run out of, I think, UC Berkeley, I want to say, um, called China Digital Times. Um, or China, sorry, China, yeah, China Digital Times. Um, they somehow were able to acquire leaked... Um, censorship directives from the government that goes, they, they go out to all news editors of websites, whether they're private or not. Right? Um, and so those are really insightful leaks. They're really short. They're things like, you know, I don't know, don't, don't play up the Ukraine crisis, for example. I can imagine that being a directive that went out this week. I have no idea if it is, but, you know, uh, or, sometimes they'll say only use, you know, for this particular story, only use Xinhua copy, right? Or, you know, don't sensationalize this issue. Um, my favorite one, and I think, I think it was an annual sort of thing, was, um, you know, Reporters Without Borders does um, press freedom rankings, right? So there was one censorship directive that I remember that was, um, do not run the story, or do not, yeah, do not run the story, um, that China ranks 180th out of 185 in press, uh, you know, uh, reporters that borders press freedom rankings. So it was a censorship directive about China's censorship, essentially. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's much more kind of indirect in that way. Um, I think there's also a lot of self-censorship, right? So people know there are lines. They might not always know exactly where the lines are. But they don't want to lose their license. They don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> you know, they they want to get along and run their their website or whatever it is. So, um, I think there's a lot of self policing in in that regard as well, which is really common with communism in general. And also goes back to the uh, comment you made about propaganda in general, how it it works best to dissuade you or, or keep you in a certain swim lane, I suppose, as opposed to actually persuade you. Um, you know, something I was, I found interesting as I was reading some of your work was 
like the differences in the tone that you were talking about in that, in that one paper um, and how the tone externally about certain countries versus the tone internally and how certain regions are talked about. And it made me think a lot about just the age of information that we are in and how personalization with like everything, you know, personalizing your ads, personalizing your algorithms, but they're taking it a step of personalizing it down to like countries or languages that you talked about Xinhua's a lot of different language publications. Um, and I was, I was looking into some of them. It was, they're all like, you know, it's, it's well-made sites and it's, you know, it's, it's well-crafted and the way you break down the messaging and all that. Um, I thought that was interesting. And in a lot of ways, it seems like China's flexing economically is also their way of flexing now uh, with their propaganda. And I wonder if you could just expand upon how, it, you know, I guess really my question is, are those two, the two sides of their foreign policy is we're going to lead with our economy and then we're going to try to persuade the people with this type of propaganda and, and flooding news stories or, or, or pushing in pressure points, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, clearly kind of China's economic prowess, you know, is, is the number one selling point. Right? It's something that all, you know, especially authoritarian states the world over kind of want to replicate, even though it's really hard to do. Um, I think what's interesting is that Xinhua, so Xinhua, you know, we've talked about it as China's state news agency. So it's also a foreign, um, an international newswire, essentially. So sort of like the AP or AFP or Reuters or whatever. So, you know, if you're a newspaper editor in Chicago, you know, you could purchase Xinhua as a wire service and get copy from it and use it. Oh my God, that's Uh, so brilliant. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's... uh, this article that you're talking about that my colleague Sam raises and I wrote was basically taking five years worth of Xinhua's foreign facing content, right? So that's, that's the newswire basically. Um, and um, testing it, just really simple like descriptive stats on what kind of themes were emphasized where and measuring um, the difference of tone about different topics in different languages. Uh, and this was basically done, this is machine learning. We didn't like, you know, uh, we didn't build a fancy model or anything. It's, it's kind of already off the shelf. Um, and basically what we found is that um, Xinhua adjusts its messaging for different linguistic and geographic audiences. So the English language content that focuses on Western Europe, the United States um, is more negative um, and highlights problems in those societies it you know it's not it's usually not like false news it's not fake news to use that horrible term it's it's just emphasizing negative aspects right of of the society which um i mean paradoxically i mean is what chinese um officials accuse the western media of doing all the time right so it's, it's sort of they sure they get some um get a kick out of that um you know but other linguistic groups uh, or other linguistic audiences, you know, the content was much more favorable. So like Korean language Xinhua and um, Japanese language Xinhua is super positive in tone. But if you go read the articles, which we actually did, it was so positive that we were wondering what's going on. Um, it's just all about how China's a good neighbor. You know, the stories are all about China's not threatening. It's none of the content was really about Korea or Japan at all. Actually, it was all about about China, but in Korean and Japanese. Um, so it was, you know, 
interesting cultural stories that are not threatening or anything like that, right? Um, and so it, it becomes clear when you slice it this way that there's different messages for different audiences depending on what the, what the geopolitical needs are of China, right? So it perceives itself as competing against the West, that is clear. It's competing against the United States and Western Europe. So it's undermining them. It perceives itself as kind of a leader of the sort of um, developing world. So you see more positive content with regard to Latin America and Africa, for example. Um, and it wants its neighbors to basically not gang up against it. So its messages to Korea and Japan are, hey, we're nice, don't worry about us. You know, we're just here. So um, so I think it's it's interesting that it it does kind of those changes in audience tone or you know match up with some political needs that that, that the party has. Yeah, and I found that really interesting about the the South Korean and Japanese examples of how I, I think you you even you both even put in the paper how it's almost as if it's not even a publication for that. It's almost just China or you know China's yeah. publication in different languages. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because I mean, it, clearly they're playing a game of chess here. Like this isn't, um, this isn't them putting it out something out that they want to get read. It's something they want to get, you know, not to get clicks, right? They want it to get read in order to influence something and in, along the margins or, or however they want it, or thinking about it and quantifying it. Um, so it's just an interesting tactic because, you know, when you have a country with the amount of scale and resources as China, like some of the moves they're making, if it's economic or in this case of these like very marginal, but brilliant things. Like I, I didn't realize that Xinhua was a newswire, which is brilliant because it's just filler or you're looking for, you know, a story about something that involves China or, you know, whatever it may be, um, just trying to jump on a trend. Um, or even just the fact that you have it as a resource is going to somehow influence the way you think in a way. Um, and it's, it's a yeah, and in particular, all... readers aren't going to, like if the dateline says Xinhua, readers, I mean, most readers don't know what that is, right? So they're reading it in their local news website or whatever it is, but it's actually, um, I mean, party approved content. Um, and, you know, the, the question is about the uptake of Xinhua. Um, that's a little harder to pin down. I did see one study um, examining Newswire, um, pick up like how many stories are reproduced in uh, a selection of African states. I forget. I think there's quite a few. I think it was like 30. Um, and Xinhua is, it's not picked up that much relative to AP or Reuters or um, AFP in particular, like in French speaking um, um, African states. Um, but it is, when it is picked up, it's what you mentioned. It's often about stories about China, right? So that means that China's self-presentation to the world, its preferred self-presentation to the world is picked up, you know, in sort of independent news outlets. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and they are like, I, I did notice around this, I don't know if it was just me looking more, but I noticed an uptick in like the Global Times, which is another state-run uh, publication that's in English. And they were just really tweeting a lot like, and, I, and I was like starting to follow it more and more because it was amazing. And their, their cartoons were quite pointed and it was clearly directed at an American audience. Um, so it, it, it read like state-run propaganda to me though. 
Um, but just the fact that they're even doing it, I find fascinating because who knows if they're going to end up getting better at it or shifting it to more of a, a shadowy means, if you will. Yeah, the Global Times is famous for being kind of very provocative and um, kind of pugilistic, you know, in their approach. Um, and very, as you mentioned, very Twitter, their editor, who I think he was involved in some sort of scandal. Um, I, I don't remember. I don't know if he's still there or not, but um, he was one of the first to kind of adopt social media. Uh, as one of China's spokespeople, um, and uh, yeah, very kind of nationalistic and um, sort of aggressive rhetoric, you know, in, in their approach. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so to kind of like read this back, just so that I can set the board really quick. So what China is, their strategy, if you will, is to paint certain regions in a light externally. So in the EU or in the U.S., uh, be more negative towards those areas and regions and the, the moves they make, your policy decisions or economic means or really anything that they are poking at or possibly responding to. Uh, and then in other regions, like uh, I think you mentioned Africa, maybe it was West Africa, I'm not exactly sure, uh, much more positive and uh, um, almost, I mean, really like a PR agency, right? Mm -hmm. Of what China is doing there, you know, how they're involved in it. Um, and then internally flipping things to be, you know, more nationalistic or more that we have a rivalry with the U.S. Um, so they're really trying to have this two-pronged approach, which in many ways, the way that they talk about something externally is at odds with the way they present it internally. Is that, am I hitting it on the head or close? Yeah, I think that happens sometimes. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the mistake some people make is, I think the reason it's important to stress kind of different external audiences, because I, th I think the mistake some people make is, you know, with this like wolf warrior diplomacy uh, stuff, right? Sort of aggressive, sort of external Can you explain messaging. wolf warrior, by the way? So uh, wolf warrior is a nationalistic movie franchise um, where Chinese soldiers um, save, uh, you know, they're involved in Africa, uh, military operations in Africa and they save people. And it's sort of a, you know, a, classic kind of patriotic action movie sort of thing. It's like um, a Charlie so, Sheen Navy SEALs movie. Yeah, something. something like this, yeah. Um, and so some Chinese diplomats a few years ago started, the, the trend was noticeable to have a more aggressive posture, especially on Twitter. Um, so um, the people who were, you know, um, in response to criticisms of Chinese human rights policies, it would be to like accuse the West of being biased and point out problems with them and that kind of thing and, and be really sort of, yeah, again, pugilistic, you know, in, the, in their approach. And the people who, the diplomats who were doing that started to get promoted in the foreign ministry. And so then others started doing it. And now you see it just pretty common, right? That it's, you know, usually ambassador and diplomatic Twitter accounts of any country are like pretty boring. You know, they're just like, I went to this meeting and met this business group or whatever. The Chinese ones are very, very pointed, right? Um, often. And, um, and so I think some people make the mistake of seeing that kind of content, particularly people in the West. They, they see that kind of content. It's criticizing the West. It's really aggressive and you know, sometimes kind of nasty and they think how could that possibly convince anybody right? and the point is not to convince people in the west of anything the point is to de delegitimize 
the West, if you want to, I mean, that term is really problematic, but set that aside, right? Delegitimize kind of Western states, um, democratic ones, particularly ones that are critical of China and um, be really nice and positive with developing states, right? China's kind of natural constituency as a leader sort of presents itself as a leader of the developing world. And let's be honest, there is a market in the developing world for criticizing the West. The West has done a lot of screwed up things. And so people, I think, get a little solipsistic when they think about, oh, this doesn't convince me or it's not going to convince somebody in my situation, but it's not really meant to. Standing up to the West can look really popular in a lot of localities, right? Um, and so I think I think that's the move. It's really hard to systematically test, but I, I think that's what's happening. Yeah, that makes sense. And China, in a lot of ways, is the new kid on the block as far as like imperialistically, if I can be uh, allowed to use that conjugation, because uh, they, they are doing a new form of imperialism. They're just driving it more towards uh, corporations, if you will. It's always been corporations, but it's more towards just siphoning resources and money out and bringing it home as opposed to really even having much influence other than making sure we're still able to do that uh, in a given region or country or state. Um, so their aims are, are different um, and you know, more leeway can be giving of the enemy of my enemy almost kind of uh, things, these things to put, once again, to put yourself in uh, the audience of that. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the Chinese surveillance state and kind of internally what it is. Um, but something that I was thinking about with reading your work um, and kind of going through past some of the things that I've been ex- uh, exposed to is their surveillance state is definitely a portion of it, but their propaganda machine is is almost in a way their greatest asset. Um, to like give you some context, like when I was in Taipei, I had a language exchange partner, right? Like we would spend like an hour and a half hour, he'd be speaking to me in English and you know, another half hour, he would, uh, I would be talking to him in, in Mandarin. Um, and one of the times we spent the whole time speaking English because he was explaining to me his, his exchange going to mainland China uh, as an exchange student and how there was you know, a graduate student there you know, who was from the University of Beijing, which is a very lauded university inside the, the country and how he was arguing with them that China or that Taiwan was not a, its own independent nation, that it was a part of China. And it was so in, ingrained in him. And even the way that he said it started extending out to the way he views other states and regions and areas and things like that. And that is such an asset to the maintained order of the Chinese Communist Party in a way that it's so interesting because you actually started quantifying some of it when it came to like the UN. And I wonder if you can talk about that, how they're kind of influencing voting and how they're able to kind of have more countries side with China, if you will, as opposed to more uh, free exchange, more kind of those like, I don't know, we can keep using the complicated term Western motives or, or kind of status quo maybe is a better way of putting it. Yeah, so to so the United Nations, um, the UN, so everyone's people familiar with the Security Council, which kind of makes, you know, sort of where the power is at, at the UN. The permanent five members are China, Russia, the United States, France, and the UK. Um, and probably when people hear about the UN, that, that's mostly when they're hearing about it. But there's also the General Assembly, which is kind of one state, one vote. Right? Um, and they, they pass resolutions all the time, like every, every year, you know, lots and lots of resolutions on 
just different things, right? Sometimes, and, and they're not binding, right? The UN can't make anybody do anything about it, but, you know, there'll be resolutions about international norms or concepts that that state or that group of states finds important. So, you know, one that China has proposed previously and, and talks a lot about the UN is the right to development. That, uh, you know, development's really important and it allows us to have better lives and more sanitation and cleanliness and education and health, so on and so forth. So that should be the kind of primary human right. You know, when you pass a resolution at the UN General Assembly about the right to development being important, I mean, <clears throat> nothing happens. <laughs> but it, 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 over time, if that happens enough times, you know, then that right can be, you know, filter into the international discourse and might over time change the way we think and talk about human rights, not in some drastic way, not overnight, but sort of slowly over time. <coughs> and so what a colleague of mine and I noticed, and others have written about this too, we're not, by far not the only ones, um, is that you see as China's power is growing and it, as its um, trade, and particularly its um, imports from a partner country, um, and as diplomatic exchanges with that country, um, as they intensify, you see countries voting records at the General Assembly move in China's direction. In other words, they vote more with China on, on resolutions than they did previously. Right? And it's sort of interesting because, again, those resolutions don't mean that much in, in any given resolution. They don't mean too much, but but China spends a lot of time and resources and diplomats, uh, diplomatic um, effort at the UN to change votes on really in all committees and in, in the General Assembly. Um, so a few years ago in the UN um, Human Rights Council, there was a, um, a letter that was leaked um, by, I forget who, but by one of the diplomats who was there from another country um, a letter sent by the Chinese delegation to, um, to diplomats on that committee um, to, to basically vote, think carefully before you vote, because if you vote the wrong way, you know, we don't want it to jeopardize kind of your country's bilateral relations with China, you know, <laughs> kind of a threat, but not explicitly stated as a threat. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's been very, um, present in the UN space in the last few years. And that's been magnified or that the pathway for that has been cleared because between 2017 and 2021, the United States was asleep at the wheel at the United Nations, basically. Um, the Trump administration very clearly, you know, preferred a bilateral approach to uh, international issues. It pulled itself out of the UN Human Rights Council. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it didn't, <clears throat> engage at the UN in the way that it probably, uh, you know, that probably would have been smart um, to, to say what it wanted to do, which is counter Chinese influence, but you can't really do that if you're not there. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the, um, the, the UN, yeah, yeah, has been a sort of a diplomatic battleground for, for a while now for China. That's interesting. They, um, <clears throat> the thing that their strategy overall, like the, I mean, really the, the party's strategy, because the ones really kind of at the helm um, has been just incrementalism, like overwhelming incrementalism of we're going to come over and just push a little bit over time. And 
you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, Obama, you know, with the, the pivot, you know, to, to China and to pivot to Asia and diplomatically speaking was um, kind of starting to wake up to it. And then Trump coming in and leaving a void to be able to exploit it uh, internationally um, is really in some ways that I'm noticing is more of just being able to take larger strides um, like the Lithuania, Lithuania and the spat that's going on between uh, the office, the Taiwanese you know, diplomatic office that was opened there. And um, I think the big part of it that really upset them was that they referred to them as a Republic of China uh, in their official. I think they call it the Taiwan representative, the Taiwanese representative office. And not the, the city Taipei. of Taipei. Yeah, not the city of Taipei. That's what it was, right? Um, and, you know, how instead of them just saying, you know, we're going to be upset with you. It was, we're going to cut commerce ties. And then it's threatening even European Union companies of doing business in Lithuania because otherwise, you know, threatening of retaliations then. So it's, it's, their rhetoric is really started kind of riding an exponent of of boiling a frog almost of a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And now we're going to come in much stronger. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Lithuania case is fascinating because um, they really put their head above water here to test what's going on. And I mean, I think it's important to note, I mean, this was not opening a Taiwan embassy. This was not changing diplomatic relations to recognize Taiwan instead of the PRC, because according to PRC rule, PRC's rules, you can't recognize both. You have to choose. So Lithuania still has diplomatic ties with with China, it did not open an embassy, nothing like that. It just named its office something different than what the PRC prefers. Um, and um, yeah, as you say, there was a massive kind of um, campaign of economic coercion. Lithuania, I mean, ha- had to be prepared for this, I think. And they um, they have really leaned on the EU to, to come to their support, which is obviously a huge market for, for Lithuania. Um, and so the EU has done a few things, but you know things are still kind of unfolding. Um, what's interesting about the Lithuanian case as well is that, you know, for for Lithuania, like the authoritarianism democracy divide is not it's not an abstract thing. It is it's it's existential. Right? They're living they part of the Soviet Union. They lived live next to Russia, which is you know um, not a necessarily a benign actor. And so um, I think it's to some degree woken up some politicians in Western Europe to, um, you know, this sort of political threat from China is not an abstract thing, um, that it's actually, you know, it actually can have concrete uh, impacts. Um, and you see the EU slowly kind of changing on China. Um, you know, it refused to ratify the comprehensive agreement on investments last year after it's a huge deal. I mean, it's been, it, and this was Merkel, Angela Merkel really wanted it to happen. This was going to be like her outgoing sort of big international deal. Um, it was basically to stipulate rules of the road for investment between the EU and China. And it happened that China um, sanctioned some European members of parliament and some European researchers who were critical of China on um, repression of Uyghurs. And they sanctioned those MEPs. But the thing is the the European Parliament has to vote to ratify the deal. 
Um, and they then overwhelmingly voted to scupper the deal or at least suspend it. I think it's officially just suspended. Um, so it could come back later. Um, and so clearly China's willing to, they're willing to take an economic hit to enforce some of these political red lines or as they perceive it. Um, and uh, and that's, that's an interesting thing that I think Europe in particular is kind of waking up to a little bit. Yeah, which is... Um... In so many ways, the European, uh, American kind of uh, diplomatic, I mean, awakeness or alertness to China is kind of ironic because, you know, if you look back in the Chinese um, Communist Party Congresses, which there's, there's one coming up in April, right? It's right after the Olympics, right? So, um, yeah. You know, Xi Jinping has pretty much explicitly been saying what he's going to do. Like one of the big things, you know, when I was in Taiwan um, that one of my professors is really hitting on was, you know, what they're working on now is building up an internal market. And then once the internal market gets big enough and overtakes the U.S., they're going to just keep it running on its own and they're not going to care as much about the external world in the same way. Um, or or they're, you know, the maybe the better way to put it is the way they act externally is going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, because at then at that point the weight will have shifted and kind of like the you know you see those maps of like the where is the GDP locus focused and how it's moving shifting more towards mm-hmm. uh, Asia and China, um, where now it's almost like the uh, people who were the powers that be, if you will, were just like yeah okay it's gonna come sure whatever, um, but it almost snuck up on them with how fast oh, now China is really able to dictate. I mean, I think the NBA with um, Daryl Morey and that whole situation really caught corp- corporate America, if you will, and, and public companies. Uh, and we're watching that because, oh, wow. So these consequences are now going to start getting broader. Um, I think that was in some way them coming above board and saying, we're just not going to televise um, games here anymore. And Houston Rockets, which was the largest franchise in China, is, is pretty telling of what they're looking to do and how they're trying to force compliance really yeah i mean it's 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 weaponizing um the uh, market access to enforce political speech right um and the nba is, a, is kind of a case in point it becomes particularly alarming in, i mean for a lot of industries um it's not that relevant but for particularly for industry like knowledge uh, production industries universities publishers, um, map makers, you know, um, if you've ever tried to buy a globe, try to buy a globe as a gift for my kid, the local store, um, all the globes are made in China. So therefore they have, um, they have the nine dash line, you know, around the South China Sea. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, they're the, the market access is a really powerful, um, weapon to, if, if they want to use it to, enforce political red lines and you see tons of examples i mean when um you know when lu xiaobo won the nobel peace prize you know um salmon from norway was was blocked for for a number of years from you know to be imported uh from china um you know you saw the same thing with um, you know as you mentioned with the nba um you know there are lots of examples of of um weaponizing market access you know clothing industry with regard to the Xinjiang cotton um, forced labor allegations. 
and it becomes sometimes just really silly, like um, uh, drop down menus of hotels and airlines where Taiwan is included as a country, you know, then, then Marriott or Delta or whoever it is has to apologize. And um, so it's, it's using market access to police international discourse about certain issues. And sometimes it becomes really absurd. So there's a well-known story a few years ago in Australia, some uh, kind of uh, never been there and seen this place, but it was like a rural town, small town in Australia. And they had, as a school project, made a globe for the town. Um, and it was one of those globes where the territory of each country was the like the, painted as the flag of that country. Right? Um, and there was a Taiwan flag on Taiwan and the Australia, uh, the Chinese consulate in whatever closest to that town was um, complained and it became a national news story when nobody ever would have noticed <laughs> this globe in a small town that was a kid's project. And so sometimes the, the, the um, zealousness to police the discourse on those kinds of issues abroad um, becomes a story in itself, which, um, you know, I would like to find some way to systematically test whether that rebounds to China's benefit by deterring other people who just don't want to deal with the hassle, or whether it rebounds to China's detriment, because then the story becomes about censorship and people start thinking, you know, being more skeptical about China. Um, I think that's an open question. Yeah, that's interesting. It's really a case in point of creating an industry, though, because they've created an industry for what is the allowed ideas or speech or political talk and, and where are the boundaries. Um, and then, you know, you can get points in a way, right? You can get credit, uh, get political capital within China if you were the one that finds you know, that mm -hmm. the globes aren't having the right boundaries or, you know, if someone is saying this or, you know, if a uh, Chinese American business person player is saying that and, you know, ways in which that you can get that, or, you know, maybe a family that's, you know, uh, recently immigrated to, Cal or to Canada and mm -hmm. they're saying things and tweeting things, you know, then we get, you know, get harassed and all of that kind of stuff. There's really a market to be able to be trading in, are you falling in line? Yeah, and I think some career incentives, particularly for foreign ministry employees, right, to find things that they, they can show that they're doing something to stand up for China abroad. Right. Um, well, we're just about at time. So I think that's a good place to stop. Um, do you have anything else you want to add? This was great. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing some of your work. No, thank you. Yeah, it was great. Great conversation. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to stop.